If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It's Philosophy Fest, a week of bonus content to celebrate our 100th episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Today's content is an audience Q&A with psychiatrist David Nutt, which followed on from his talk, The Science of Psychedelics. The talk was released earlier today as episode 97, so feel free to give that a listen first, or the psychedelic savvy amongst you can dive straight in. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, David, and thanks to the audience. We've now got about 10 minutes for Q&A, so David's going to pick a few right, people thanks. out and I'll... Well, why don't you start there and we'll move along, right? So start All there. Right. Um, thanks very much, and I uh, yeah, obviously agree with virtually everything you said. I just wanted about the question of the ability of these things to help us attain insights in things like science, where actually we're not talking about changing your attitude or your emotions, but knowledge. I can see that, and I can understand that, but it seems to me that given I, you meet a lot of people who have like dropped acid or something and believe they've gained new insight, and actually it's gobbledygook, um, does it really only really work if prior to taking it, you've kind of actually done a lot of hard work and thinking, you've got the knowledge that enables the novel connections to be made? If, you're, if you don't have that knowledge, you're just probably going to come up with some wacky theory, maybe. I think you're right. I think you've got to be close to Einstein to understand, you know, to have the insights to change physics. You've got to be pretty... Pretty smart to have the insights to change biochemistry like Kerry Mullis. Because I don't think any of us just dropping acid are going to suddenly turn into the next Einstein, no. As Einstein himself said, you know, success in science is 90% hard perspiration and 10% inspiration. So yeah, I, don't, I think what these drugs do is to allow those people who are thinking about hard problems to have different ways of thinking about them. In the same way as Kekulé, who discovered the structure of benzene, he, did, he was a top organic chemist and he struggled for years and eventually he saw the, the molecule as a serpent biting its own tail when he was falling asleep one day. So, so altered states of consciousness can give people who are on the, th the cusp of insights, uh, insights that can actually change things. But for most of us, you know, you're not going to become Einstein or Darwin just by taking LSD. Um, you, you said as babies we have all these connections and they sort of close down o o over time till they're opened up by the drugs. Mm. Is there any way that we can develop our brains from birth so yeah. that we don't have these, uh, so we keep the open mind? Or in another way, is there anything other than the drugs that can turn off those sections of the brain that allow us to, to have these experiences? I'm a great believer in not constraining kids because a lot of what we do when we constrain kids is we actually en engender excessive rigidity of thinking which leads to people having OCD and depression and guilt etc 
So I'm kind of, I'm a, I'm a kind of believer in more free expression, and certainly, at the very least, cultivating all aspects of, of uh, brain functionality rather than just learning and rote. Can we do anything other than take drugs to loosen them up? That's a really interesting question. So, yeah, maybe things like holotropic breathing, maybe just having a broader experience of life, maybe coming to good lectures, I don't know. <laughs> Next one. Um, is there much uh, evidence or experimental research about motor skills and how psychedelics can improve motor skills? Because my experience has been playing musical instruments. Yeah. On a mushroom trip or some other psychedelic, I can get about three days of practice done in a couple yeah. of hours. And also, could you say a word or two about Iboga? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the answer is, like, we, we're very interested in that. Um, whether, in principle, the, uh, the answer should be yes. There should, it shouldn't, there's no particular reason why cognitive skills should be preferred, except that the motor systems, the primary motor cortex doesn't have many of these receptors. But the other parts of the motor system do have. So, the, so it may, I think the learning might be facilitated, but in the end, the skills won't be. And that's probably why you can still play when you're tripping. <laughs> um, and then the Ibogaine is a, another uh, plant-based psychedelic, um, produces slightly different trips. We don't exactly know how Ibogaine works. It's got a bad press because it's been used to treat people uh, in opiate withdrawal and a couple have died. <coughs> but it's an interesting drug, but very hard to study. I, I suspect it's not as interesting. I don't, people don't get the same kind of cognitive flexibility, but it does seem to wipe the, the, wipe the addiction clean in some people. Yes, who's the next one? Yes. Hi, uh, thank you very much. Um, I'm the director of a drug treatment program in New York, yes. and I've worked in the field for 30 years. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of changes, especially now we're dealing so much with opiates and with heroin. Yeah. Um, but what hasn't changed is this great emphasis on total abstinence yeah. and the goal being sobriety. Mm -hmm. And the thinking being that even if your drug of choice is one thing, if you um, stop that, you're, you have a greater propensity to abuse something else. Um, I mean, I think that what you're uh, presenting here shows that there are very significant uh, differences um, among drugs, different types of drugs, but I'd like you to talk about that, that abstinence model. One of the most remarkable events in the history of addiction was Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, converting from being an alcoholic to being uh, an absent alcoholic based on a psychedelic trip. And in fact, Wilson, promote, there was, Wilson was so profoundly positive towards psychedelics. He was actually the guy that first gave LSD to Huxley. Uh, he got the NI US government to fund six trials of LSD, That's one or two doses, to, chain, to treat alcoholism. The outcomes are better than any treatment we have had ever since. In 1967, when LSD was made illegal, Alcoholics Anonymous had a schism. There were those like Bill who said, we've got to use psychedelics to help people reset their mind so they're free of the desire to drink. And the others who said, no, if it's illegal, we've got to comply. And since that time, there have been no studies ever of LSD to treat alcoholism. But the good news is we're starting one. We've actually started one now where we're actually using MDMA to treat alcoholism because it's less threatening to authorities. But I believe these drugs, which are not addictive, they're anti-addictive, could be a revolution in, in the treatment of addiction. I'm going to go back to the first question. Because as a scientist, I was told that my mind needs to relax and we think much better if our brain produces certain wavelengths. <laughs> yeah. Have you done any research after these people have taken 
yeah. this drug and maybe they cleanse their mind, yeah. whether they produce much more of those wavelengths, if we believe. Yeah. And my yeah. second question is... Is what she allowed two questions? <laughs> <laughs> You're so soft. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. What did you discover under the influence of LSD? So pass the next, pass it around to the next person. Um, I never talk about myself because otherwise, I will, whatever I say, I'm going to be abused by lots of people, so I never do. In terms of what happens afterwards, um, yeah, we're beginning to study that. We, uh, we can, you can see these profound alterations uh, in EEG or MEG signals when people take psychedelics. The question is, what happens subsequently? What is, can you, is there a signature in the brain of that enduring improvement in some people? And the answer is, those kind of things are very difficult to study, but we're trying. I mean, we certainly out in the depression study, you, we used fMRI imaging to show that there was a, a readjustment of connectivity in the frontal parts of the brain so that the anxiety circuit was turned down. And that, we think that may reflect the improved mood. So we're beginning to study that. But it's actually, the brain is a very complicated thing, and there's a lot going on other than just mood. So that often get, you know, the mood changes get obscured by all the other things that are going on. Um, I'd like to rush about spice, if that's okay. I to talk about what? Spice. You mean synthetic cannabinoids? Um, I work for the uh, Ministry of Justice, and yeah, there's a lot yeah. of concern about spice in, in prisons, um, and concern amongst prison officers about co it causing high levels of un unrest in prisons. Yeah, I was yeah, wondering yeah, yeah. what you think about that. Well, spice is an example of how your uh, ministry has got it so wrong. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, I'm kind of... I'm rather grateful that you had the balls to admit who you work for, but, <laughs> but, but you, yeah, so, I mean, Spice is, so last year in, in, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that last year, the last data we have, seven zero, seventy people in prisons died of Spice. Most prisons now have a permanent team of big male paramedics to control the prisoners who are going crazy on Spice. Why do we have Spice in prisons? Because the government and many prison officers decided it was sensible to test prisoners for cannabis use. There's never been a death from cannabis in prisons. But prisoners aren't stupid. If you test them for cannabis, which you, the urine tests can be positive for weeks after a single dose, they're not going to use cannabis, they're going to use spice. So we have created a spice epidemic simply because we have this bizarre, punitive approach to people in prison. We'd actually, if we, if we could, we'd still strip them naked and have them walk under cold showers every day and make them run, work on treadmills because we have a Victorian attitude to prisoners. We like to punish people. We don't like to rehabilitate. We filled our prisons up with people who, are, who use drugs, who carry on using drugs in prison, and by testing them, we force them to use more and more dangerous drugs. So we have created a spice problem, and what we should do is let prisoners smoke dope, and everyone will be happy in prison. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much to David and the audience. <laughs> Music in this episode was provided by Psychedelic Pedestrian. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to tune in this week for more Philosophy Fest bonus content, and thanks for listening. <laughs>